You're listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We will be joined by cancer experts to discuss blood cancer diagnosis, treatment, side effects management, and the importance of clinical trials. They will share their experience in treating patients and discuss strategies for optimal patient care. Let's get the conversation started. Welcome to Treating Blood Cancers, LLS podcast series for professionals. I'm Dr. Ken Miller, and I'm a medical oncologist and an LLS volunteer. I want to thank you all so much for joining us on this episode. Today, we'll be joined by Mr. Richard Gover, who's a survivor of myelodysplastic syndrome since 2016, his wife, Nancy, and Dr. Vu Duong, who's an assistant professor of medicine at the University of Maryland School of Medicine in Baltimore. Firstly, thank you all for joining us. Thank you. So, Vu, I want to start with you. So let's talk about MDS, because I think it's important to, to, as a background, to say, you know, what kinds of MDS are there, what, um, and what are some of the things that help you make decisions in looking at an individual patient or patients about what to do for them? So myelodysplastic syndromes are a group of bone marrow diseases and really a group of bone marrow cancers that have some common features. So one, uh, all patients have some low blood counts. In addition, when we look underneath the microscope, their cells, their blood cells, and their bone marrow cells look abnormal. Um, and really, this is uh, the disease is partly due to uh, all patients have kind of ineffective uh, blood making or hematopoiesis, and all patients have at least slightly increased risk of progression to a more aggressive bone marrow cancer known as acute myeloid leukemia. So there's lots of different things that we look at when we evaluate a patient with myelodysplastic syndrome. First of all, we look at how low their blood counts are. Um, That affects kind of the prognosis. And then in addition to that, when we diagnose the disease on the bone marrow biopsy, what we want to look at is the percentage of blasts or the immature cells and whether or not those are increased and how increased they are. Um, And then we also want to look at any chromosome changes that are there in the malignant clone. And certain chromosome changes predict for a better prognosis, and some, unfortunately, predict for a much worse prognosis. And we put all that together, and there's risk scores that uh, we put out there, one of which is the revised international prognostic scoring system, a revised IPSS. And that's what we use to kind of risk gratify patients. And there are some patients who have lower risk disease and can do well for a very, very long time and may never even need transfusions and may live a very normal life for many, many years. Um, And then there are some patients, depending on their risk factors and the considerations that I talked about before, unfortunately do much poorer. And those are patients that we have to be much more aggressive about and give therapy that potentially modifies disease and an attempt to also get them to stem cell transplant, which remains the only potentially curative therapy for the disease. It goes back almost three years ago. You know you're going to see a new patient. And what did you find when you met Dick? And then if you would maybe sort of summarize this medical journey very broadly about what's going on since. Sure. Well, this is taking us back a little while ago, but when we first met each other, he had already been to another oncologist and had some bone marrow biopsy results. And when he came to me, we repeated it and confirmed that he had myelodysplastic syndrome and that uh, you had higher risk disease. I was I think most impressed by the fact that at the time you were 69 years old, but I think what one of the things I was most impressed by is that you were really in excellent shape and had really taken care of yourself during that time. And I think that that helped us in terms of opening up treatment options and such. 
It's been a long journey, but to summarize briefly, at the time when you were diagnosed, we started a drug known as azacitidine, which is considered the standard of care for patients with higher risk disease. You responded beautifully to the drug and really gained a complete remission. Afterwards, you proceeded to get the stem cell transplant from an unrelated donor. Um, unfortunately, less than a year later, about six, seven months later, we started to see a fall in your blood counts and confirmed soon thereafter that uh, the disease had come back and that you had relapsed. We went back to what worked the first time, the azacitidine. You were able to once again gain a good response. And we also saw an increase again in the chimerism study. So the donor cells had uh, come up in your bone marrow. And so we followed that with the donor lymphocyte infusion. And again, the chimerism studies did kind of go up some after that. And then afterwards, we restarted the azacitidine. And unfortunately, after that, some of the blood counts really started falling pretty significantly. It was hard to tell, was that disease or was that from the azacitidine itself? And then unfortunately, after that, you ran into some trouble, especially with your breathing and ended up in the intensive care unit for some time for a good two weeks or so as we were trying to figure out, was this an infectious cause? Was this something else? Eventually, unfortunately, we were not able to biopsy, but we had determined that this looked like this was graft-versus-host disease of the lung. You were given some steroids and really improved pretty quickly and pretty remarkably. And then afterwards, as you left the hospital, we had stopped the acytidine at that point, still worried a little bit about your blood counts, repeat bone marrow biopsy, still showed that no evidence of the myelodysplastic syndrome. And it took a long time, uh, many months, but then your blood counts eventually started to improve with no further interventions. All right, let me get a sense from you because it, yeah, it's a lot of, a lot of history and a lot of, you know, it sounds like you, you had a very rich and busy life and then all of a sudden this happened. Looking back on a couple of minutes, we're, we're going to dig in a little bit deeper, but, but what's this whole experience been like? Let, let me, you know, you sort of go, whew, and I'm looking at you and you look very healthy, but what, what's the journey been like for you? Uh, boy, it's been an experience, I'll tell you. Uh, from day one, when we first met Dr. Wong, he was remarkable, really. He helped us along so much the entire time. Going through all the transfusions and medications and trips to the hospital and stays in the hospital and trips to the emergency room, you know, sometimes you think it's never ending. And, you know, the... Uh, Actually, I had a couple baths with GVHD. The uh, severe rash that I had back in the, uh, I think it was winter, early spring of 2017, it, it uh, lasted for weeks. But again, it, we overcame it. And it seemed like every time there was a, some sort of a problem or issue, we dealt with it and we overcame it. It is, it is pretty miraculous, again, looking at you and you're, and again, you look terrific. I think one of the key things for me was I kept a positive attitude through through the whole thing, and I was patient, and that that made a difference. I think. Nancy, how about for you? I can, you know, I, I I'm listening to all this. And I'm going to start with the very beginning. When we left that small hospital, local hospital, it gave us a very bleak, dreadful news. As did our family doctor. We came here. You gave us hope, doctor. And I mean, we know there are no guarantees. We know what we're dealing with, but you gave us hope. And I'll always be thankful for that. That's something that I cannot stress enough. So it was like, thank God, not only did you give us that, you had a plan right away. And that was so very important. I personally felt more confident when we were dealing with that. 
the scary things were the trips to the emergency room because yeah, they yeah. give you that magic number, 100.4. And since I'm a compulsive person, I mean, to take a temperature 20 times in an hour, I didn't think that was <laughs> <laughs> Twice when we got here, it was see, normal, but that, it wasn't at home. So, so that's every three minutes. I want to make sure. <laughs> that's right. Wow. Um, it, so that type of thing was very frightening. You know, I felt like if we could get them and get the proper care, it wasn't nearly as scary as that was a lot of responsibility for someone with no medical knowledge. So I, uh, I'm going to ask a question that I don't often ask my own patients about, but if you don't mind, I'll ask you. During any of these episodes, did you think, or uh, Dick or, or Nancy, did you think, he's going to die? It, it, it never never entered my mind. I never thought about dying. Yeah. I never thought that I was going to die. I was completely confident the whole time. Yeah. Okay. With the background and what I used to do, mm -hmm. uh, I can't stress enough positive. Mm -hmm. um, that's very important. What was very hard is in front of him, the answer is no, I had to be positive. Yeah. yeah. God knows what I said to him, you know, because mm -hmm. you couldn't. So yes, there were various episodes. And I think the toughest thing is you're not going to, you can't share that with him. Mm -hmm. and you're not going to share that with your children. Yeah. Yeah. That was hard. Yeah. I can know. I can imagine. That very first, you know, you, again, you, you went for, it sounds like a regular visit with your doctor and they called up and said, go to the hospital. And then, you know, you had a bone marrow and, you know, these other tests. What, what was finding out the news like for, for, for the two of you? I was in a bit of a shock. Mm -hmm. I, I didn't. They told me I had MDS. I looked at MDS. I never heard of it. I didn't have a clue. And right away, I thought, you know, can this be cured? Can it be treated? Um, what type of treatments were available? Um, I was always very healthy throughout my life, and you know, certainly, it, you know, everyone thinks it's not going to happen to me, but it happened. Yeah. Let me ask you, when, you know, when, when you first met Dick, what were some of the things that went through your mind as you were sort of uh, figuring out what's next? Well, I, I think, as I said, I think first, first of all, just given Dick's age, it was one of those issues of, you know, what kind of therapy can I offer and what is he realistically going to tolerate? Fortunately, azacytidine is very, very well tolerated and most patients tolerate it well. And that wasn't so much my concern. The issue, of course, is that the azacytidine by itself is not curative. And so really the issue was, even if I can get a remission with the Videza, am I really going to be able to cure Dick here? And so that was really the big thing is referring him to be seen by one of my transplant colleagues and having that evaluation. As I said, though, I think that one of the biggest things, though, that he had going for him since the very beginning really was that you were just really in very, very good shape and had really taken care of your body throughout. So that was one of the important things. And then otherwise, just looking through the disease characteristics, again, as Nancy said, there are never any guarantees, but certainly I was hopeful you would respond to therapy. That being said, you know, looking at your disease characteristics, you certainly had high-risk disease given the changes that you had in your chromosomes, how low your hemoglobin especially was when you first came to me, and just with the increased number of blasts in your bone marrow, these were all high-risk features that I was concerned about, quite frankly. And it sounded like pretty soon afterwards, a few days, a few, maybe a week or two, there was a plan. Uh, what was that like for you guys? You, you know, you, Nancy, I think you actually said a little bit about it, to go from, holy, this is what we're facing, to let's do something. We were told there was no hope. Wow. 
we were told he was too old for a transplant. And that particular individual knew because he was around the same age. This is what we were told. So just to have somebody tell us anything that gave us hope was, it was unbelievable. I mean, it was, it was truly a gift. And I can't stress that enough that, you know, nobody knows what tomorrow is going to bring and neither did that other man at the hospital. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Something that I keep in mind, I, I think part of our prescription when we're taking care of people in general is a prescription for hope and hope is, is free and typically doesn't have a lot of side effects. So I, so I agree with you, absolutely agree with you. All right, so you, you started on treatment and then I, it sounds like you did respond to the azacitidine and then you went to see Dr. Yair to, to talk about transplant. So what did you hear about sort of uh, the transplant process, Dick? Well, he didn't uh, hold back at all. He told me, Mr. Gober, you have a 40% chance of surviving this. Yeah. And he was uh, very open and he explained how the transplant would work, that there were, he told me there were millions of people that were part of this donor pool. And I was fortunate enough, they found two donors that matched me 100%. And he, uh, I received the transplant on October 26th of 2016. And I was in the hospital the minimum amount of time that it went very well for me. I was in there exactly 21 days and I was released. Now, let me ask, you know, the 40, was having the numbers good or bad for you or, or neutral? I, I mean, I, I, again, I felt confident the okay. whole way through this thing. When he said 40%, it just, it didn't mean anything to me. I just felt good about my, my chances. And Nancy, what, what, were numbers good or, good or bad? I was asked that question, and I would appreciate anybody's honesty if the yes, question yes. was asked. Right. If I didn't know that, you know, they say people that don't know those things turn out a lot better. <laughs> I would have liked that, but I'm not that kind of person. Yeah, so he yeah. gave us an honest answer. What more can one ask? Yeah, yeah. Let me ask you that question, mm -hmm. too. When, when people are facing oh, leukemia yeah. or myelodysplasia, What's your sense? Do they do they want numbers? Do they want broad strokes? I think that everyone is different, and I will tell you that my own practice, and we may have done this as well. You know, when patients ask me for a number, meaning you know what is the average life expectancy, or what are the chances that I'm going to respond to this drug or that drug or this treatment, I always say, listen, I am happy to share. I have all these numbers. I'm happy to share everything that you want to know, but. I also can't take a number back as soon as I say it. So before I answer, just double check and just think whether or not you really want to know the number and whether or not you want that information and whether or not that's gonna change what you decide. Again, I'm not holding anything back. If you wanna know the number, I'll tell you. And I'll tell you that that's been my approach and I will tell you that there are some patients who say, of course, I just asked you, of course I wanna know. <laughs> and then there's other patients who say, you know what, on second thought, yeah. you're right. Let me think about that, and I may ask you again later, but right now I don't want to know. Yeah. I mean, it's, I find somewhat the same thing, because you're right, you can't take a number back. I do recall you telling me, though, when you sent me over to Dr. Yared, he said he might frighten you. <laughs> and I think I may have said also that if he didn't frighten you at least a little bit, then he didn't do his job. Exactly. Yeah, and that's the truth. Exactly. All right, so, so, so you really did go into transplant with your, your eyes very much wide open. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But you know, my biggest fear was... There wasn't anything else to do. Well, there, there wasn't a chance. I, you know? 
You could treat somebody who had a 99.9% chance of recovering and they could go out and get mm -hmm. hit by chalk. Yeah. And, you know, I think one of my biggest concerns was uh, finding a donor that was 100% match. Mm -hmm. And when they told me that they found two out of so many millions, mm -hmm. I was really surprised. And, and I was elated, really. So you, you went in the hospital. Sounds like the, the first, uh, first uh, it went smoothly. I mean, 21 days and out of the hospital uh, was good. Let me check in with you because I, you know, I know that when we were sort of talking about this, then there was graft versus host disease. Can you say a little bit about what happened and, and what went, again, what went through your mind at the time? So I would tell you, they, so the graft versus host disease, the one that I was most involved in was the most recent one where you started having shortness of breath. Um, and at that time, the blood counts were really low. And when we did a CT scan, we saw abnormal findings there. There were infiltrates there. And so the question, you know, we all jumped to the idea, oh, this is an infection. That's common things being common. That's what it was. And I will say that, uh, you know, Dick, your presentation in terms of kind of how long, it, how long the course of things was a little bit, a little bit atypical. But so the, the, that GVHD, we didn't recognize it at, for, at first. We thought that this was infectious in etiology. We treated with antibiotics, antifungals, and things just kept worsening and to the point that you had to go to the, our intensive care unit. And at that time, we wanted to do a biopsy to kind of confirm and try to figure out what was going on. The problem is the platelets were too low and we couldn't do that. And so then we were faced with this decision, well, the last thing that we're not treating here is this lung GVHD. Do we just kind of say, okay, go ahead and let's just give you the steroids with some potential consequences if there's an infection, some potential negative consequences, or do we kind of give it some time and see if we give you antibiotics and antifungals for longer, whether or not that's going to improve things. And after some extensive discussions, we felt that, especially just given the course of how you were doing and the amount of oxygen that you were needing, that we really had to give you the steroids to, to see if things would improve quickly, and, and we were lucky in that they did. Dick, do you, what do you remember of that of being in the ICU? Not much. Not much. <laughs> All right. Which is, which is honestly what I thought. <laughs> yeah. Well, we went to the emergency room that evening, and then they hauled me upstairs, and I, I found out that I was in intensive care, and yeah. Dr. Duong told me uh, so much went on that I don't recall. Absolutely. Being very open and honest, and as I'm sure Nancy knows, that at that time I was worried about you. I'm going to be very honest with you at that time. But it was pretty remarkable once we started the steroids. You responded very, very quickly. As you may remember, Nancy, um, the amount of oxygen that you needed went down dramatically within about 24 hours even. It, it, it happened pretty quickly. Yeah. And a couple of days later, you know, I remember walking into the room and you were sitting in a chair with a tiny bit of oxygen in your nose. And I mean, you were clearly, you, you, you look like the healthiest guy in our intensive care unit by far. And you almost had this look, uh, you know, when you almost communicated with your eyes looking at me like, why do you still have me here? You know, what am I still doing here in the intensive care unit? I feel great. Why do you still have me here? And I could almost read that in your eyes. Yeah, I was taking walks around the corner. And what are you doing? You're what not are you doing supposed to do in the ICU. <laughs> All right. So, so, I, so Nancy, I'm sort of looking at you at this point, but. He's intubated. He's got a tube. You've got all these doctors. What were you thinking? What was, what were this, you feeling? This went back long before that. Yeah. Where he kept at home, he kept coughing to a point where I'd have to scream at him mm -hmm. to get back. Mm -hmm. I was thankful to get him in the hospital. When he was on the hospital ward, 
they don't take temperatures there as much as I do. Right. Okay? <laughs> and the door was closed. And that used to worry me. We had a tough time getting cough medicine because if there were emergencies and whatever was on, somebody had to sign off. And I remember saying to the nurse, I have it in my purse. And I think I gave her 15 minutes or I was going to give it to him. <laughs> so I was just so glad to get him in ICU where somebody was right there. And I remember saying to the nurse, I said, you know, should we stay here? He said, he's the most stable guy here. He, If they had had a room in his intermediate ICU, but they were full. So they put him up there. And he progressed so fast that, I mean, I was just so grateful to have somebody sit right outside that door. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's almost, I, I don't know how to phrase the question differently, but where was your worry level at that point? My worry level was before he even went in the hospital. Yeah. When someone coughs so much and they like go out and right. you scream at them. We were in the hotel when it happened one night huh. and thank God there was a driver that takes people somewhere and he took us right to the hospital and this bothered me more than anything else because they knew this wasn't right mm -hmm. so once i saw that and he was getting here and he wasn't coughing like that yeah it was just a relief so it was actually a relief it was a relief uh, how happened when he was intubated what was that again at least we weren't dealing with that cough we, we weren't dealing with you know I remember saying to the nurse, how often do you check them? And I thought, i got to stay here. That's it. But when he was in ICU, there was somebody right outside Someone the door. Someone taking care of it. So it was actually it was really, there, really so reassuring. It was, it was definitely better. Yeah. I mean, I didn't know what to do. So to have somebody there to know what to do, to know he was getting the best possible <laughs> care he could. And that's all you can ask. Got it. No, you're absolutely, you're absolutely right. All right. So you have you get through that. And then my understanding is what happened next? Go so what happened next is, uh, so again, after you got out of the ICU, your blood counts were still pretty low. And what was most low was really your platelets. And that's what kind of held things up. And, you know, we did bone marrow biopsies because at that point I was concerned that with kind of how the pattern of your blood counts falling, uh, even after the donor lymphocyte infusion and after the azacytidine, I was concerned, are we losing the response again? Or alternatively, is this just kind of bone marrow suppression from the azacytidine, which can happen a little bit more in patients who have been through as much therapy as you've had and the cellular therapies that you've had. And the bone marrow biopsy, I was pleased to see that there was no evidence of the MDS and the chimerism study still showed 100% donor. So that was reassuring. But at the same time, you were needing platelet transfusions pretty often still. And so there was a time where I kind of said, well, what do I do about this? Is that, it, you know, it's great that Dick's marrow looks good, but if he still needs platelets all the time, then the effect on your quality of life also isn't great, and that's not really what we set out to do originally. And so, as you know, I waited a long time, and even after that last cycle of azacytidine, there was a long time in between, and your platelets were still pretty low. And as you know, I talked about other alternatives. There's a drug on the market known as Altrombopag, which was not really my favorite choice, but it was something that I was considering in you to see if we can improve the platelet count. And then just as I was about to prescribe you that medicine, your blood count stabilized and started to increase further. And I breathed a little bit of a sigh of relief and, and I was glad that I didn't have to give you that medicine there. What I heard is that you relapsed. Is, yeah. that, is that the case? When you found that, do you remember Vu telling you that or Dr. Yared? 
Dr. Year Dr. on the Year, blood test. Yeah. yeah, how did he how did he explain it to you, Nancy? I'm just wondering. Well, the the numbers were down mm -hmm. and they would have to watch that. That's usually what we were told. Yeah. But we were also told I believe it's called a booster that they can give. Mm -hmm. You know, he only had the one transplant, which is very you know, everybody's there holding their breath and it was like that's it. <laughs> you know, we were shocked that, that you know, transfusions it's were, a bag, were more. A bag, I mean, that was it. transfusion bag. Yeah, right. I hear you. Okay. And I mean, that's what I was so concerned about that or holding our breath scared to death. And uh -huh. I remember looking, uh -huh. this is it. We're done. <laughs> you know. Right. So there was always, okay, they could give them that booster. They have, what, another bag in reserve on So that's the donor lymphocyte infusion. Okay. Yes. Mm -hmm. So when you know there's something else, you know, it's not as frightening as that's it, we're done. And we didn't know about that second bag. We found out about that, you know, mm -hmm. when he told us that. So that helped tremendously. So, so, so the feeling of having a backup made a big difference. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And what's the status now? And, and then I'm going to ask you what your status is, but, 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 but medically, if, you know, since we're... I, medically, you're doing very well. Um, as you know, we just saw each other a couple of weeks ago downstairs in the outpatient uh, center there. And, you know, you were telling me that you were doing very well and feeling very well. We were checking your blood counts and really everything looks very stable. The platelets are a little on the low side, but they're still well above 100. And so I said, I think that you're doing very well and just continue to follow with me and with Dr. Yared. So what do you think? I feel great. I'm exercising every day, lifting weights. I have a treadmill and a stationary bike at home that I use mm -hmm. every day. And weather and time permitting, I take long walks. So I, I feel as if nothing has really ever happened to me. It's all in the history. My platelets today are 123. It's been a while since they've been that high. Well, and congratulations. Dick, let me ask you what, because this, you know, it's certainly been, been quite a journey. What is there anything different about you now than two, three years ago as a person, as a man, as a person, as a husband? Uh, you, you have a greater appreciation of life. You really do. And you, I think everyone's guilty of taking a lot for granted. And you, you have just have a greater appreciation of everything and of what doctors can do for you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Another question. Sort of, I see the two of you sort of got through through this together. You know, you you and Nancy. And what you know is, have you do you find your marriage is different? I'll ask both of you guys, for better, for worse, for that matter. <laughs> we we've always had a great marriage. <laughs> I'm sorry, who is this person? <laughs> okay. I tried to keep it as normal as possible. Yeah. And sometimes you found yourself even trying to start those arguments that you know you had before just to make sure he's okay <laughs> so, so the more even i could keep it the better it was i think perhaps it's left me i mean the, the man can't clear his throat without me saying are you all right yeah, you know yeah. and i guess that'll go on forever yeah. has it made me a better person it's made me a wiser person and i'm not sure that's better you know when you can live in your own little world and it's a wonderful little world, <laughs> and suddenly you get to see all this before you. I question things that I have never questioned before. Yeah. Like what? Do you mind sharing? No, not at all. All right. Um, I've always had a strong belief in God, which I still have, but I'm not too sure about the religion yeah. in which 
I believe anymore because I was able to step aside and see all these things that um, perhaps I didn't agree with. You know, and it's easy just to get up every Sunday morning, half asleep, and to find yourself at Mass, and you don't have to think. Now you have time to think. Mm -hmm. So that is what's different for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I want to ask you a little bit about supports. Were family, friends, community able to provide what you needed in terms of helping you through this? Are there things that you could have used that, that you didn't get from all those support networks? I'm just wondering. Well, my children were wonderful. Again, they have a medical background, right. and yeah. I always went to them. I'm probably a more secretive person when it comes to that. I know I ran into our family priest in the food store, and he came up to me. Oh, we're, pr we're all praying for you. <laughs> it's not that bad, please. Uh -huh. <laughs> so, again, that's just, I think that's a personality. He talked to a lot more friends. Yeah, and yeah. You called the priest, right? <laughs> you told him. Well, I was not sure. He probably wanted to know why I disappeared. So. <laughs> <laughs> Let me actually ask, you know, sort of, again, looking back on sort of this journey, um, you know, and I think medicine for many, it really is the practice of medicine. But, you know, in terms of working with, with Dick and Nancy, any sort of things that, that you're reflecting on now on the last two, two three years? I, I think so. I mean, certainly, I would say just to get it out of the way, certainly medically, you know, we've made some advances in the last several years and such. But more so than that, I think so. I think that I've come to appreciate more and more. And, and I think that for the two of you, it was very obvious from the moment that I met you how strong your relationship was. And what's very important to me, and certainly what's very important to Dr. Garrett and the transplant team, is that you have a good support system to help you through uh, these times, especially as it comes to transplant. And I will tell you that I didn't have a doubt even for a minute that that was going to be an issue for you, just given it was clear to me that you had wonderful support from your wife and from others as well. That was very clear. And I think that I've, over the years, I have come to appreciate that more and more as a physician. And I think that, unfortunately, I think that good family, good support from family and friends is probably not as common as you think. And I think that, unfortunately, I see it a little bit more in my day-to-day -day practice. And so I think that I'm, I'm more and more appreciative every time I see such wonderful support from family and friends. Yeah, I think that, that's part of the healing, too. I'll ask you something else, too. Actually, I'll throw it out to all three of you. But um, uh, the doctor-patient relationship, what role does that play in, in, in this whole journey or in the journey of being sick and getting better? I think it's very important to be able to speak your mind, as you well know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. You, you had someone in there with you one day, and at the end, he looked at me, said, any questions? And I said, no, I'm good. He said, well, that's a first. <laughs> that tells you something. Sure. Um, yes, I think that's very important, and something I will never forget is when he started getting better, and you looked at us, and you said, that's why I became a doctor. That look on your face, you said it from the heart. It could have been used in a movie. Oh, it, it, was, that's it, nice. it was perfect. That's nice. <laughs> yeah, that's nice. And I'll say, you know, in my own practice, obviously, I put a lot of emphasis on that. And sometimes, unfortunately, means I'm somewhat late to appointments and things like that when you're coming to see me. And But I think that you all know me well enough to know now that if I'm late to an appointment, it's not because I'm out playing golf. It's because 
I, there are some conversations that you just can't rush. And I feel that that's my responsibility as a physician to make sure that I, as best as I can, give them the care that they need in that moment. And, and sometimes that can't be rushed, even if that means that I'm a little bit behind um, on my uh, clinic schedule for that day. We have to remember that we're used to dealing with family practices where you can sit in the office for two hours. Were you ever late? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes, I was. <laughs> And Dick, I just finally maybe uh, one one other question for you. So you're, you know, someone gave you bone marrow, and right now, my understanding is you're sort of uh, they the word they we, we use in medicine is mosaic, a sort of a blend of your bone marrow and that person's. What's that like for you? You know what? I sure would like to meet the person. Donated <laughs> his stem cells to me, but uh, you know, my I understand my blood type has changed from A to O, yeah, and. Uh, yeah, I wish I could just wrap my arms around the guy and just thank you, you know? Yeah, yeah, that's nice, and I, and, and I hope that happens one day. <laughs> Absolutely. That's up to Dr. Yared and his team to arrange that, but yes. <laughs> He's a 25-year-old kid, and how fantastic is that? How many 25-year-old well, kids would even do that? You know what? That is pretty amazing. Yeah, yeah so I was hoping the 25-year-old would show more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we were able to find out things we weren't supposed to, I suppose, but I found that learned he was from Germany. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, and I'm going to take the opportunity also to ask, what are the things you're excited about in terms of treating patients with myelodysplasia? What are some of the new findings or the things that you feel are sort of around the corner? So things around the corner. So first of all, at the annual American Society of Hematology meeting for patients with lower risk disease with certain mutations, uh, well, with a certain mutation, uh, there is a new drug that looks very exciting, one known as loose patercept. And my understanding is that the company is now filing for FDA approval, and that looked like it had some very, very promising results. It was presented at the plenary session, and it looks like it can improve anemia in a subset of patients with myelodysplastic syndrome. So I think that that is around the corner. And then for patients with higher risk disease, there is a drug out on the market known as venetoclax, and it's approved for other diseases and other cancers, specifically chronic lymphocytic leukemia. But it looks like it has a role in myeloid malignancies as well. And so far, the evidence behind it in acute myeloid leukemia, AML, looks very promising. And I'm hopeful that that's going to translate into some hope also for patients with myelodysplastic syndrome, particularly in the higher risk of uh, patients and probably in combination with the standard of care, which would be either azacitidine or decitabine. Yeah, good. It's hard to be a patient and it's hard to be a caregiver in this situation. What are some of the resources here and some of the resources in the community that are that you find are helpful for your patients? I think that first and foremost, you know, the, the resources that we have here are obviously me on our doctor's visits. I always ask at the end, do you have any questions for me? What can I explain better? What's not clear to you yet? Are you, you, are, are you confident in the plan? Things like that. Also, our nursing staff, our medical assistants. You're seeing a lot also in the infusion center for transfusions and things like that. And we encourage you certainly with things that are new or other questions that come up that you've got various opportunities in the infusion center as well to kind of ask and make sure that your questions are answered. So I think that that is going, always going to be uh, an important resource for you. On top of that, uh, I always caution patients about looking on the internet because some sources are much more reliable than others. Certainly, the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society has lots of resources available on their website, as well as other things that if you call them and contact them, they can set you up with. So things such as peer support and other support groups, informational resources, brochures, 
things like that that they can offer to you. There's various other societies that specifically for leukemia and myelodysplastic syndrome and bone marrow failure, other societies and foundations that have similar resources as well. So I want to conclude by thanking you all. Dick, Nancy, thanks for joining us. Vu, you're quite welcome. Thanks for joining us. For additional resources on MDS, myelodysplastic syndrome, please visit our website, www.lls.org forward slash MDS. And for a listing of our continuing education activities and healthcare professional resources, please visit www.lls.org forward slash CE. For any questions or to refer a patient, please contact our Information Resource Center by calling 800-955-4572. Information specialists provide personalized one-on-one support to help patients learn about their disease, treatments, financial, and other resources. Thanks for listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We can be found on iTunes and other podcatchers. You can subscribe at www.treatingbloodcancers.org and provide your suggestions for future topics. Visit our archive section on our website for other great podcasts. Be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. Keep up with LLS by following us on Twitter at LLSUSA and on Facebook at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. And access our professional continuing education activities by visiting lls.org CE. Let's keep the conversation going. Until next time. <laughs>